0: If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our
1: Lord.
2: listen to someone teach, when I read a book, when I watch a movie, or listen to someone share a story with me, there's a, a question that I ask myself in all of those situations, and that question is, what's the point? What's the point of what you're teaching? You know, what's the point of this book? What's the point of the movie? What's the point of the story that you're sharing with me? And as I ask that question, I often discover that there are many points. You know, oftentimes as you listen to me teach, you realize there are many points. There's many points in books or, or in movies or in stories. And so when I recognize that, I ask a more specific question. And that is, what's the main Points. You know, what's the main point this person is trying to teach me? What's the main point this book is wanting me to, to understand? What's the main point this movie is wanting me to, to take away? What's the main point this story has? And because I, I love to know uh, what the point is and, and what the main point is, I really love Hebrews chapter Eight, because the author does something at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8 that you really don't see the authors of the Bible do very often at all. And the author starts the chapter by saying, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. So he's starting this chapter, bringing us to this place of, hey, this is the main point of all these things that we've been saying. Now remember, uh, starting back at the end of chapter 4 all the way now to the end of chapter 7, the author has been giving us reasons why Jesus is a greater high priest than the Levitical high priest, why Jesus' priesthood is greater than their priesthood, why the new covenant under Jesus is greater than the old covenant under the law. And in these chapters, the author is now kind of bringing everything together. He's had a lot of points, a lot of things that he's shared. And now as we come to chapter eight, he's like, all right, I'm just going to come. I'm going to dwindle it down. I want to share the main point. Like if you haven't been following everything I've been trying to communicate, well, here are the main things that I want you to understand from all that I've been trying to share. And so he brings it really down to two main things that we'll see here in chapter eight. First, in verses one through five, he's going to give us one main reason why Jesus's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And he's going to use Exodus 25, 40 to help make that point. And second in verses 6 through 13, he's gonna give us two main reasons why the new covenant is greater than the old covenant, and he's gonna use Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 to help make these two main points. Now I love the fact that the author uses Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 to make the main point of the new covenant being greater than the old covenant. And the thing that I love about Jeremiah 31 is it's very explicit when it speaks about the new covenant and how it is greater. The points it makes are directly stated. They're very clear. They're very Plain, And I think this is something that was important for the initial readers, but also important for us today, because up till now, the author has been using Old Testament verses to kind of make his points uh, about the things that he's been sharing about Jesus as our high priest and the new covenant. But, you know, all those points in those verses really have been implicit, not implicit. Explicit. They've implied many things about Jesus' priesthood and the new covenant, but they haven't explicitly declared them. For example, last week we were looking at what the author revealed to us concerning the implication of Psalm 110.4 where it speaks about Jesus being a high priest forever. And it looks at, hey, look at the implication of that word forever. And he spoke about that word forever implying four things about Jesus' eternal nature. That he is our eternal guarantee, our eternal salvation, our eternal intercessor, and our eternal perfect sinless high priest. Now, it was nice to look at the the many implications the author was able to bring out from Psalm 110.4, but when you're trying to build a case for something, having verses that are explicit and directly state what you want to communicate is even better than verses that just kind of imply those Things. And that's what I love about Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, because it is explicit. It's going to directly state why the new covenant is greater than the old. And it's a very powerful passage. And I think especially for those initial readers coming out of Judaism, realizing, wow, in the Old Testament, it explicitly says these things that we're now being told by the author of Hebrews. Now, before he uses Jeremiah 31 to make really the second point, He starts with his first main point, and he's going to use Exodus 25, 40 for that. And the first main point deals with why Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And we're going to see that first main point in verses 1 through 5. It says this. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now in the last few chapters, the author has given us many reasons why Jesus's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And now he just says, you know what, I'm just going to bring one main reason. If you, if you can't, hold all those things in your mind. Here's one main reason why Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, and it's quite a compelling reason. And the reason really focuses on the place where Jesus, our high priest, conducts his high priestly duties versus the place the Levitical priests conduct their high priestly duties. He says, we have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which was, which the Lord erected and not man. So notice the author starts telling us where Jesus presently is at right now. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And the author reveals that where Jesus is presently at is the true tabernacle that the Lord erected or built, not man. Now what the author is doing is making a contrast between the heavenly tabernacle that God built versus the earthly tabernacle that men built. And he has some important information for us to understand about the difference between these two tabernacles to see why one would be greater than the other. And notice what he says in verses three through five. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you On the mountain. So the author starts revealing one of the main roles of the high priest was to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And because that was a main role, it's necessary that Jesus, our high priest, also has something to offer. And he did have something to offer. We've looked at that. And in chapter 10, the author is going to get very uh, detailed about that. He offered the perfect sacrifice of his own perfect sinless life. But the author goes on to say, "...for if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law." And he's just bringing something up that we've already looked at as we've been looking at Jesus, our high priest, that according to the law, the the requirements for the Levitical priesthood, Jesus didn't meet those because you had to be from the tribe of Levi, you had to be from the lineage of Aaron. And so the author is saying, hey, you know, Jesus wouldn't be able to to be an earthly priest under the law because he doesn't meet those qualifications. And that's why the author went into detail about Jesus being a priest according to a completely different order the order of Melchizedek. He's not under the uh, Levitical order that is bound to being a, uh, from the tribe of Levi or the lineage of Aaron. He's from a different order, not connected to the old covenant or the law. He has a new covenant of grace. But in verse 5, the author is getting to his main point. He says, the Levitical priests are under the law. They serve the copy And shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So now the author takes them back to Exodus, reminds them of the giving of the law. Remember when Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai and he meets with God. And really there are three main things that he receives when he's there on Mount Sinai. He receives the law. He also receives, um, the uh, things that the priesthood, to establish the priesthood, and then uh, he received the um, instructions for the tabernacle. And the author is quoting Exodus 25, 40, when Moses is spoken to by God concerning the tabernacle, it says, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So when it came to the tabernacle, notice that God was very adamant, and the author's quoting this, that the tabernacle would be made after the pattern that God clearly told Moses about when he was up on Mount Sinai. And why is it that God wanted that so specific? Why was he so concerned that you better make sure that all things in the tabernacle are according to the pattern that I showed you? Well, the reason was... Because the pattern that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai was the heavenly tabernacle. He's like, hey, we're going to pattern, I want you to create an earthly tabernacle that patterns itself after the heavenly tabernacle. Now the point the author is making is he's contrasting this earthly tabernacle versus the heavenly tabernacle tabernacle. But he's also contrasting the fact that Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle versus the fact that the litical priests serve in the earthly tabernacle. So the heavenly tabernacle, notice the difference. It is the original tabernacle. It is the eternal tabernacle. Its place is in heaven. And guess who made it? He says it was erected by the Lord, not by man. So it's eternal, it's original, it's in heaven, and God created it. Well, contrast that with the earthly tabernacle. Well, the earthly tabernacle is the copy. It's not the original, it's the copy of the original. It's not eternal, it's temporal, and it wasn't created by God, it was built by men. And so he paints this picture, and it should be obvious to the readers and to us as well, which one of those would be greater is the greater the one that God creates that's eternal that's the original in heaven or is the greater the one that men create on earth that's just a copy that's inferior that is temporal well obviously the greater one is the one in heaven now the author has made this case about well Jesus couldn't serve in this inferior temple because it was under the law, and he had to meet the requirements of being of the Levitical priesthood and uh, the lineage of Aaron, but you know what? What he's trying to help us see is he can serve in the heavenly tabernacle. He wasn't allowed to serve in the earthly one, but guess what? He meets the requirements for the heavenly one, and what's the requirements for that? He has to be the sinless son of God, and that's the only one that gets to sit in the heavenly tabernacle and be our high priest there. And when you contrast that with the Levitical priests, well, yeah, they might be able to be uh, from the tribe of Levi and the lineage of Aaron. They might be able to serve in the earthly tabernacle. But guess what? They do not meet the requirements to serve in the heavenly tabernacle. Why? Because all of them are sinners. None of them could ever meet the requirement to serve in the heavenly tabernacle. And so the author's main point is that Jesus' priesthood It's greater than the Levitical priesthood because Jesus serves in the greater heavenly tabernacle. Well, now that we understand that contrast, I want to point out something that I purposely skipped over in verse 1 because I think it was important to see this contrast before we looked at it. And so let's go back to verse 1 for a moment and see what the author says. We're told, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven heaven. So the author here is describing Jesus and describing where he's at, but also in this description of where he serves as high priest, he really shares three things within this description that shows us why Jesus is greater than any of the Levitical high priests. And the first reason is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, this reveals to us that Jesus serves as our high priest from a role and a position of all authority. He is literally on the throne of God. He is the one who has pure authority. Now remember, Jesus is different than the Levitical high priest in this way. He is not just high priest, he is also king. Remember we noted that in the Old Testament, God would never allow a high priest to also be king or a king to be high priest. They were separate roles and no one person could have both of them. But Jesus does have both of them. Not only is he high priest, he's also king of kings and lord of lords. He rules and reigns from the throne of God. And so as high priest, he's also seated in this position of all power and all authority, which is something that the Levitical high priest didn't have. They didn't have any of that kind of power or any of that kind of authority, which makes Jesus greater. Second, the fact that Jesus is seated on his throne reveals something quite interesting. If you think about, uh, if you were with us when we looked through uh, Exodus and the tabernacle and we saw all the different things that were meant to be inside the tabernacle, one of the things you probably noticed is there was no seat, no bench, no place for the priest to sit. Oh, there were lots of things for them to do. There were lots of uh, things that they had to have in there so they could continue to serve the Lord, but there was never a place for them to sit down. And the reason for that was because their ministry never ended. The sacrifices had to keep continuing. They were never meant to sit, never meant to stop. As they went out, new priests would come in, and this process would just be a continual one because the ministry never ended. But Jesus' ministry is different as our high priest. Because the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they never fully dealt with sin, and so they had to just continue over and over and over and over. But Jesus, he sacrificed himself on the cross once and for all. And he says those wonderful words as he's there right before he dies. It is finished. His sacrifice finished it all. It completed it all. And guess what? Since it's finished, just like when God created the world in six days, the seventh day he rested, Jesus' work is now finished and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is able to sit. He doesn't have a perpetual, continual, sacrificial work because his work is finished, unlike the Old Testament priests who have this continual work, and so Jesus is greater in that as well. And third, the fact that Jesus is seated on the throne of the majesty reveals that he is continually in the presence of Almighty God the Father. You know, the Old Testament priests, everyone would have, or at least the high priests, they would have been probably jealous of them because at one time a year they got to go into the holy of holies that one time a year they got to experience the majesty of God but it was only one time one day out of the year out of 365 days they only got one day to experience the majesty of God in the holy of holies but you know what Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle he's in the holy of holies in heaven all the time he is in the presence of God the Father all the time he's surrounded by the majesty of God. And once again, showing how much greater he is than the Levitical high priest. So the first main point that the author shares with us and the main reason why Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood is because Jesus is the only high priest who has a finished work and serves with all authority in the original, eternal tabernacle in heaven made by God himself. And that's so much greater than the Levitical priests, because they had a continual work. They had no authority. They had an inferior copy of a tabernacle that they served in. It was temporal. It was on earth, and it was made by men. Well, now we're going to come to the second main point the author wants to make. And his focus is going to shift from Jesus' priesthood to the new Covenant, And he wants to show us why the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And he starts his argument in verses 6 and 7, which says this, But now he has ordained a more excellent ministry, sorry, obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. The author wants us to know that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry than the ministry of the old covenant. And the reason that Jesus's ministry is more excellent than the ministry of the Levitical priest is because Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant that was established on better promises. Now this Greek word translated mediator means one who stands in the middle between two people and brings them together. If you remember in the old covenant, Moses was that mediator. Moses was the one who stood between the nation of Israel and God and and helped bring them together. But in the new covenant, Jesus himself is our mediator. He is the one that brings us together in a relationship with God. Now the author wants us to know the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant really for two main reasons. First, because it was established on better promises. And this is something we'll look at as we conclude in verses 10 through 12. The author is going to share with us three better promises from Jeremiah chapter 31 that God clearly said he was going to establish the New Covenant on. So that's one reason The second reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is because if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If the old covenant was faultless, if it didn't have any problems, any faults, God would have never made a new one. What would be the point? I mean, this one's perfect. This one does everything that's needed. So we'll just keep it. The only reason you replace it is because it has a fault. It has a problem. It has an issue. And so God says, because it's has a fault, I'm now going to create a new one that actually is faultless. Well, the author is going to expound upon this thought in verses 8 and 9. Because finding fault with them, he says, now he's quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, I think a question right now that would impose, especially from people who came out of Judaism, which was the initial readers of this letter... They loved the Old Covenant. They thought it was great. They grew up in it. And so I'm sure they're asking themselves the question, well, wait a second, when did God find fault with the Old Covenant? You know, when was it that God saw that there was some fault in this covenant? I mean, isn't this the thing that you know, our ancestors have been following and doing for thousands of years? I mean, when did God find fault? Well, that's a great question that the author answers. And I love that he answers it with something that God clearly declared himself in the Old Testament through Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He says, this is the Lord speaking. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is 600 years before the new covenant's actually made when Jesus comes and dies on the cross. But God says, hey, you know what? It's coming. I'm prophesying about the future. I am going to make a new covenant. God's clearly saying that he's going to do that. Now, it's important to note that this Greek word translated new does not speak of a new production of something old. Because that's typically what we have in our culture today. I got the new iPhone, which isn't really much different than the last iPhone. It might have a better camera or something. So it's kind of just a little bit better. You know, it's more new in time than anything else. Or I have this new thing or that new thing. But, you know, that's not the the definition of this word. It's not just speaking of a new production of something old. It's speaking of something brand new and completely Different. That's what this word is referring to. So what this is not saying is that God upgraded the old covenant. It's similar, but now it's better. No, he didn't just take the old covenant and say, you know, let's just tweak it a little here and there. And now we got the new covenant. No, he completely replaced the old covenant because of its faults. And he made something completely different that is far greater than it. And that's why Jeremiah says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be according to the old covenant. It's going to be something completely new, far greater. Now, the reason God made this new covenant was because he found fault with the old covenant. And I want you to know where the fault was. People will think, well, why would God create something that had some fault in it? Well, notice the fault is not in the covenant. The fault is not in the law. The fault is not in anything that God established. The fault lies, notice what we're told, because finding fault with them and because they did not continue in my covenant, I rediscarded them. The fault was in the people. It wasn't in the covenant itself. It was in the people. You see, the old covenant, God says, hey, you do these things. You obey my commands. I'm going to bless you. But if you don't, I'm going to bring curse to you. And they say, we'll do it. We'll uphold our end of the bargain. We'll fulfill these things. But guess what? They didn't. The fault wasn't in the fact that the the covenant was bad or the law was bad. The fault was in the fact that these people could not keep it. They were The problem. You and I are the problem. If we seek to try to relate to God based on works, guess what? We can never do what God's perfect standard tells us to do. We are the problem. And So when God recognized that the people could not meet the qualifications of the covenant, he didn't continue with the old covenant. He caused it to be replaced with the new covenant. So the first reason the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant is because the Old Covenant had a big fault. The people couldn't keep it, but the New Covenant doesn't have any faults. And really the reason the New Covenant doesn't have any faults is because the New Covenant is established on better promises than the Old Covenant was established on. The promises of the Old Covenant weren't bad promises, but they weren't as good as the ones of the new covenant because the promises of the old covenant were, hey, you do your part. I promise to bless you for it. But if you don't do your part, none of those blessings are coming. And so the promises were great. Like, hey, you do this, and I'm going to bless you. But the problem is they didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They failed to do it. And so now those promises kind of stink because I don't get any of them because I'm incapable of living up to my end of the bargain. But the new covenant has better promises. Promises that are not dependent on you or me in order to receive them. And these better promises were declared by God in Jeremiah 31. Right after he says in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to make a new covenant, he goes on to tell the better promises that he is going to give. And so the author continues to quote Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and verses 10 through 12. And it says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. God's making it real clear. This is the covenant. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So first God says, you know what, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And then he tells us what kind of covenant he is going to make. He gives us three better promises that the new covenant is going to be established on that the old covenant was not established on. And these three better promises really helped us see why the new covenant is, one, faultless, and two, greater than the old Covenant. The first better promise that God says the new covenant will be established on, notice he says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. The Under the old covenant, the laws of God were external. They were written on tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments, as Moses received them up on Mount Sinai, they were literally written on tablets of stone, but they were external. And the big problem with the external law was it had no ability to help you keep it. It had no power to help you keep it. You look at the the Ten Commandments and it declares, this is God's standard for your life. And then you realize, okay, well, I need help to to meet this standard and and it doesn't do anything for you. All it does is show you this is the standard, but it has no power to help you accomplish and meet that standard. So under the old covenant, the law didn't work Inside people. It didn't motivate people. It didn't empower people. But under the new covenant, God promises that the way in which we relate to the law is going to be very different. There's going to be a big change. Under the new God, covenant, God promises that the law will no longer be an external thing written on tablets of stone. Now it's going to be something internal. God's going to put it in our mind and he's going to write it on our hearts. You see, the biggest fault of the old covenant was that people couldn't keep the covenant. They couldn't keep the law. And the biggest part of the problem with the law is that it didn't help people keep the covenant. Well, God ultimately dealt with both of those problems in Jesus. Jesus perfectly kept the law on our behalf. And he also died on the cross for all the times that we have broken the laws of God. And because of Jesus' death on the cross... God is now able to change our ability to keep the law. You see, it's no longer an external thing that we have no power to keep. Now it's something that is internal that God gives us the ability to do. And how does he do that? Not just by writing it on our heart and putting it in our mind. He also empowers us to keep it through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And this isn't just something that the New Testament tells us. This is something that the Old Testament prophesied would happen. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 gives a prophecy speaking about the New Covenant and what God would do and how things would be different for people in the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. Notice what Ezekiel prophesies. I will give you a new heart And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You see, in order for you and I to be able to actually do the law, live out the law, be obedient to what God's perfect standard is, really, two things needed a change in each one of us. First, we needed a change of heart. You know, from our heart is where we get the desires, the, the, the motivation for things. And before we accepted Jesus, the Bible's very clear. We had hard hearts of stone. You know, stone is a great picture of what our heart was like because it was just so hard-hearted. When it came to obeying God and doing the things of God, we didn't have a heart that desired that. We didn't have a heart that was motivated towards that. We were hard-hearted. We didn't want anything to do with the things of God. We wanted the things opposites of what God would say. But you know what? A change transpired. When we accepted Jesus, God changed our hearts. He replaced it. He's like this hard heart of stone that you once had, I replace it now with a new heart, a soft heart a heart of flesh, a heart that's open and receptive, a heart that's willing and desires and motivated to do what I command you to do. And now that we are soft-hearted, there's this great change. There's this desire to do and obey God's law. But you know what? Desire isn't enough. I'm sure that you've had plenty of desires to do right things, but if all it is is desire, you'll find that it falls short. Desire needs with it something else. And that's where the second thing that needs to change is so important. The first thing was we needed a change of heart. The second thing is we needed a change in power. Before we accepted Christ, the only power we had was in ourselves. And guess what? In ourselves, you and I do not possess the power to keep the law, to keep and obey what God commands us to do. We just don't have it. We don't have the ability. We don't have the power to accomplish that. But when we accepted Jesus, a great change happened. God gave us a new power. And that power came through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life. That God says, you know what? The moment you accept Jesus Christ, I am going to fill and indwell you with the Spirit of God. And He will empower you to be able to obey God's commands. That's why Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and notice what the spirit will do, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. It's the spirit that causes us to do this. It causes us to walk in the commandments of God. It causes us to keep the things of God and to do the things of God because now we have a different power than we ever had before. So under the new covenant, God has made it possible for us to keep the law. By putting the law in our mind, by placing it in our hearts, but most importantly, by empowering us to keep it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think this brings up an important question that maybe you're even thinking about right now. If under the new covenant, God has given us the power, the ability to keep his law, then why is it that so many Christians fail? Not so many Christians Every Christian, why is it we all are incapable of keeping the law? Well, there's probably many reasons we could look at, but I think the main reason we don't keep the law is because inside of us there's a battle. The Bible speaks about it often. There's a battle between our sinful flesh and the Spirit of God who lives within us. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, guess what? He is not only willing, he is able to empower you to live for God and obey God. But that's not the only thing inside of us. I wish it was. When we get to heaven, it will be. The flesh will be gone. But guess what? We have to deal with this sinful flesh within us that desires the things that are opposed to God. And so that's our problem. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh, it's weak. And it has a weakness and a temptation and a desire for the things of sin, for the things of this world. And so that's the battle that we struggle with. And the reason that we often don't fulfill and do and obey the commands of God is because we're being led by our flesh. We're giving into our flesh. We're not feeding the spirit. We're feeding our flesh and it gets stronger within us. And we end up doing the things that we know are wrong because it's written in our hearts and our minds. We know it's not right, but yet we pursue it because of this battle. And so even though we have the power to do what God has called us and commanded us to do, we often don't because we are fleshly weak and led by that too often, and it becomes a problem for us. So the first better promise that God says the new covenant was established on, which will make it greater than the old covenant, is He will put His laws in our mind and write them on our hearts and empower us to do them through His Spirit. I think it's important to understand something that I know I struggled with in my younger Christian life and even still now. The Word of God tells us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we have been given. What that means is that we have everything that we need to live a godly life. And I know in my early Christian life, I made a lot of excuses Excuses like, you know, I just don't have what it takes. I don't have what I need to do what God's commanding me to do in this area or in this relationship or to resist this temptation or whatever it is. I would just use this excuse of, I just don't have what it takes. I just don't have what I need. I'm not given what I need to fulfill what God has called me and commanded me to do. And that's just a lie. Bible says, no, 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 you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have the Spirit of God. He empowers you to accomplish what God has called you to do and what God commands you to do. He will enable you to obey those things. So it's not a matter of you haven't been given what you need. And so don't buy into that lie. Don't use that excuse. Don't just say, well, I guess I'm just never going to, you know, overcome this sin. Or I'm never going to have, you know, a good relationship with this person. Or I'm never going to whatever, you know, that we use because, oh, I just don't have it within me. No, that's not true. You have a flesh within you that maybe is causing you problems. But guess what? You also have the Holy Spirit within you that if you rely upon, will give you the power to do what God calls you to do. And that's the struggle. We don't rely upon his power. We don't rely upon him like we should. And when we don't, we fail. But I want to encourage you, you can have success and victory if you truly will trust in the Spirit and what He wants to do in your life. The second better promise that God says the new covenant will be established on is verses 10 and 11. It says this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Here God's saying there's going to be a special kind of relationship that I have and a special kind of knowledge that those who have a relationship with me are going to have. And this is quite interesting because when you look at the old covenant, really no one had an intimate, close relationship with God. And the reason is because their sin always kept them distant. I mean, the people that you would say maybe had the closest relationship would be the high priest, but even him, he had to do all these ceremonial cleansings and washings, and then he had to sacrifice for his own sin before he could come into the Holy of Holies. And if he didn't do all those things, he'd be struck dead because sin was still a problem. Sin was still keeping him, even the closest one, distant from an intimate, close relationship with God. So nobody under the old covenant had that kind of relationship because sin was just covered. It wasn't fully dealt with like it needed to be. But under the new covenant, everyone has the ability to have an intimate, close relationship with God. Why? Because Jesus has dealt fully with our sin. And everyone has the law of God put in their heart, in their mind. It's written there. Everyone has the spirit of God dwelling in them. But here's the great thing. We have the ability not only to have power through the spirit, To do the will of God, the Spirit also is our teacher so that we can know the God's will, know God's word. That's why God says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For we all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. You know, it's interesting under the old covenant, the main teachers of the things of God were mainly rabbis and priests. And there was a certain class and social status that was often required before a rabbi or a priest would take the time to invest in you and teach you the Old Testament, the law, the things of God. If you were a poor fisherman, or if you were a hated tax collector, or if you were just some kind of person in society that didn't meet the the class or, or meet the social status, then these rabbis, these priests wouldn't give you the time of day. That's one of the things when they looked at Jesus, the rabbi, and they looked at who he was a rabbi over. It's like, look at these you know, fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot. I mean, these are people, but most of them would have never been taken by other rabbis to be invested in, to be taught. This shows the difference of heart that God has. But you know what? Things changed. Because really all they had was the knowledge that these rabbis would teach, and many didn't get that knowledge at all. So they were quite ignorant to a lot of the things of God. Under the new covenant, the main teacher is not a rabbi. It's not any person. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You know, one of the main roles, the Holy Spirit has many roles, but one of his main roles is to be our teacher, He's there to teach us the things of God. And the Holy Spirit doesn't care what class or social status you have. He will teach every single person that He indwells. And any person, no matter what your background, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what status you have in our culture, if you accept Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will indwell you, and He will also teach you the things of God. And so if you will take the time to study the Word of God for yourself, The Holy Spirit will teach you what the Word of God says. So the second better promise that God says the new covenant will be established on, which makes it greater than the old covenant, is He will make it possible for us to have an intimate relationship with Him and teach us by His Spirit. I think something important for us to understand is that God's Word is not understood because we are so intellectual or so smart. You know, the Bible is a spiritual book. And there's a lot of brilliant men and women in the world today who have no clue what it says. It's not about your great intellect because it's a spiritual book. You need spiritual insights. And guess where they come from? The Holy Spirit. He is the teacher. He is the one that helps us understand this spiritual book with these spiritual truths. So, you know, I talk with many people over the years as a pastor and they might say, you know what? I wasn't a good student at school. I never really became someone who studied well. I wouldn't call myself an intellectual in any way, shape, or form. And they've come to this false belief that because of that... I could never really learn the Bible for myself. You know, I'm glad to come to church and have you teach me or some other pastor teach me or or some other more mature, more intellectual, more whatever they think, and I'll learn from them. But, you know, I, me, myself, me writing the Bible myself, I'm just not a really good student. I'm not really smart. I, I just couldn't learn this stuff. Because they bought into the lie that, you know, it's intellectual prowess that ultimately enables someone to be able to understand a spiritual book. But that's not the case. If you make time to study the Word of God, I will guarantee you the Spirit of God will teach you. And I want to give you a warning. Do not rely on me to just teach you once a week here on Sunday. If that's the only time you're in the Word of God, it's not enough. And you shouldn't be relying on anyone else to be the only source of your growth in understanding God. You should be every single day recognizing the spirit of God dwells within me and therefore he can teach me and God wants to personally teach you. So don't just depend on people like me to do the work for you. Study the word of God and recognize he can, he will, he desires to speak personally to you. And I can guarantee you there's so much more power And there's so much more excitement when you come to truth yourself because the Spirit of God is speaking directly to you as you invest that time than it is, oh, wow, that pastor really was able to, to communicate that to me in a way that I could understand. Well, I hope I can do that for you. I hope I do bless you. But you know what? There's something that you need, that I need, that all of us need, and that is our personal everyday study, trusting in the power of the Spirit of God to speak to us. And I guarantee if you do that, he will. The third and final better promise that God says the new covenant will be established on is in verse 12. It says this, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You know, of all three of these greater promises, I think this is the greatest promise Of all of them. And it's something that is so different than the promises of the old covenant because the old covenant was all about hey, if you do what's right, you'll be blessed. But right when you sin, right when you have lawless deeds, right when you have unrighteousness, now you're suffering my wrath. All of a sudden, now there's this change in the covenant of the new covenant. Look at this promise. He's going to deal differently with our sin. As we've noted, the fault of the old covenant is that people couldn't keep it. Their sin broke the covenant. Under the new covenant, God promises to deal differently with our sin. He promises, notice, to be merciful to our unrighteousness, and to our sins, and to our lawless deeds. And we're told He will remember them no more. Now the reason that God can deal differently with your sin under the new covenant is because the new covenant has its foundation on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, under the old covenant, sin had not been fully dealt with. The whole sacrificial system was just a covering. The, The blood of animals, all that stuff, it just covered. It didn't really deal with sin. It just covered it until God would ultimately deal with sin at the cross. And so the Old Testament sacrificial system never really fully dealt with sin the way it needed to be dealt with. And so sin was always a problem. But when Jesus went to the cross, that was dealt with once and for all. And because the New Covenant's foundation is Jesus and the cross, now God can deal differently with our sin than he dealt with with the sin of the people in the Old Covenant. Because he couldn't deal differently with their sin because it hadn't been dealt with at the cross. But our sin has been dealt with at the cross, and so God now is able to deal differently with us when it comes to sin. He is now able to be merciful to our unrighteousness, our sin, and our lawless deeds. This Greek word translated merciful means one who demonstrates mercy and compassion, someone who is ready to forgive sins. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is able to now be merciful to you. He's able to forgive you and me our sins. And the author tells us that the unrighteousness and the sins and the lawless deeds that we have done, God will remember them no more. This Greek word here translated remember means to recall to mind, to be reminded of something. Now, this is not saying that God forgets your sin. God is all-knowing. He can't forget anything, but he can choose not to remind himself of the sins that we have done. So remember no more speaks to the fact that God chooses to not remember, not remind himself of the sins that we've done, not to hold those things against us, not to bring them up to his remembrance as we sin. He lets them go. Psalm 103.12 is a wonderful verse. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. As far as east is from the west, you go one way or the other. It just keeps going. What a wonderful truth. That's how far God has removed the transgressions, the sin in our life from us. And he's able to no longer remember, to bring to mind those things. You see, what the author wants us to understand is under the old covenant, sin wasn't fully dealt with, but under the new covenant, it was. Fully dealt with, completely cleansed, totally forgiven, which enables God to be merciful and enables Him to remember those sins no more. So the third better promise that God says the new covenant will be established on, which makes it greater than the old covenant, is He will be merciful to our sins, forgive them, and remember them no more. And need to understand that the only place you find that complete forgiveness is not in a works-based Old Covenant relationship. That's where so many people think, well, I'll earn my salvation, I'll work my way to God, I'll do enough good things where God will love me and accept me and forgive me and save me, and it doesn't work. There's only one place where we have that complete forgiveness, and that is in the New Covenant in a relationship with Jesus because Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross, and it's only through accepting Him and what He has done that gives us this wonderful wonderful forgiveness and mercy and the fact that God remembers those sins no more. Well, the author finishes this chapter in verse 13 saying this, and that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Since the new covenant is so much greater than the old covenant, there was no need to keep the old covenant around. Now, remember, this is a prophecy about something that wouldn't take place for 600 years. So it it speaks about um, obsolete and uh, ready to vanish away. But guess what? It's vanished now. Now that the new covenant is here, the old covenant is gone. We no longer have to relate to God based on a works law based relationship. We now have this new covenant of grace. We relate to God based on the work that Jesus has done for us. And we never have to go back. It's obsolete, it's vanished away, it's been replaced, it's been done away with. God has no desire for us ever to go back. And for those believers who came out of the Jewish background who were considering going back, this would be a powerful statement. Hey, God himself never wanted that. Once the new covenant came, he never wanted you to go back to the inferior, the worst. He wants you to stay with what is best, what is greater. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. So the old covenant has vanished away with all its types and symbols and sacrifices. As the morning mists dissolve upon the rising of the sun, as darkness flies away when the light shines, so has the covenant of works departed forever. In its place stands out the everlasting covenant of God's unmerited mercy to the most guilty and vile of the sons and daughters of men. No matter how guilty You are of sin. No matter how vile your life has been, if you will put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be under this wonderful, amazing new covenant. Your sins will be forgiven. You will have a relationship with God. You will be empowered to live for God. He will teach you His Word and who He is. Every sin that you've ever committed, will ever commit, has been completely forgiven. God remembers them no more. You now have the law of God in your mind and your heart and the power of the Spirit of God to live out those things and obey them. And you have an intimate relationship with God where you can continually grow in your understanding of Him because the Spirit of God will teach you. And so I want those truths just to bring you comfort this morning, bring you encouragement this morning, but I also hope they bring you motivation. Motivation to recognize, you know what? I can do what God calls me to do. I can do what God has commanded me to do. I don't have to continue to be defeated by this temptation or be living in this certain way or whatever thing that I've been hung up on for so long to recognize. You know what? I have power through the Holy Spirit to gain victory in areas of my life where I've convinced myself I'm just going to be defeated forever. It's not true. God wants you to gain victory. He's given you what you need to do that. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I wish I knew more of God and his word. Well, you know what? Study it. Get into his word. His spirit will teach you. He wants you to know him. He doesn't just think, oh yeah, wait till he opens that book and he'll just be have a blank mind the whole time. He wants to fill that. He wants to teach you. He wants to encourage you. He wants you to know who he is. And so my encouragement to you and to myself as we go through this week to recognize I can do what God's called me to do and I can grow in my understanding of him if I will trust in the Spirit, rely upon his power, and invest in studying his word. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful So grateful that you do so much for us. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are our high priest. A high priest that is seated at the right hand in all power. One whose work is finished because your sacrifice was complete. We're so grateful that, Lord, you sent your spirit to indwell us, empower us, teach us. As Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit. You guys are going to have me, my spirit dwelling within you for ever. And Lord, we're just so grateful for that truth. So grateful that we know that we we don't have to do it on our own. It's not based on our own power. It's not based on our own intellect. God, we can know you because your spirit can teach us. We can live for you because your spirit can empower us. And I just pray that we would be reminded of that truth, but it would actually do something. It wouldn't just be something intellectual that we leave here thinking, oh, that's great, but it would actually change the way in which we live this week. That we would see victory in areas where we've seen defeat. That we would grow in a knowledge of you in ways that we haven't in our life up to this point. That we'd be motivated to read your word because we know that you will teach us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would do that work in us. That You would encourage us in that. And if you're here this morning and you have never made a choice to put your trust in Jesus, you hear of all these benefits of the new covenant, of the fact that you can be forgiven, you can be empowered by God's Spirit, that you can have a relationship with Him. It all comes through putting your trust in who Jesus is, that He is God, and the fact that He died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. If you've never made a choice to put your trust in Him, and you want to be sure today that if you were to die, you would have uh eternity with him in heaven, that your sins would be forgiven. If you've never done that, I just want to give you a moment right now while we're in this time of prayer, people's eyes are closed. If you haven't done that, and today you want that to be the day that you put your trust in Jesus for the first time, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and I want to pray for you. Just give you an opportunity today if you've never done that and you want to do that today. God bless you. Anyone else wants to make a commitment to Jesus Christ? Put your trust in him. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Too often we think we can just do it some other day, but we're not guaranteed tomorrow. If the Spirit of God is moving in your heart today and you want to put your trust in Jesus, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. I'm just going to ask you to repeat just in your own mind after me. Power is not in the prayer. It's just in the fact that you truly mean what you're saying, that you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you believe in who he is. So repeat this after me. Father, I believe that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross for my sins, that He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. I ask You to forgive me of my sins, to come into my life, to save me and empower me to live for You. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for another person making the greatest decision there is. A decision that impacts all eternity. And we know your word says that the angels of heaven rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance, Lord, and we rejoice with those angels this morning. And Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you are so good to each one of us. And we pray that you would just enable us today to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have the worship team come on up and lead us in a final song and just a couple of announcements. Men, the Thursday is this Tuesday, which means it's our men's Bible study, 730 at my house. Uh, Jaime is going to be teaching that. And I encourage you to come on out, enjoy the fellowship, be encouraged. Uh, our home group this Thursday is at the Weldon's house. Uh, as usual, 6 o'clock, come for a meal. Uh, and so that's going to be a great time. Colson's going to be teaching that one. Uh, and then we're going to have our next outreach. The last one you know, got changed because of you know, all the um, horrible weather and things that uh, prevented us from getting together. But we're going to do it the first weekend in April, which is going to be Saturday the 3rd. And the 4th of April is Easter. There are two days that a lot of people will come to church that they won't come any other time, Easter and Christmas. So hopefully this will be a great opportunity to get out, share with people the gospel, and also invite them to come and get to hear about the resurrection, get to hear the gospel proclaimed. And so Saturday the 3rd, we're going to start at 1 o'clock. If that's something that you are free for, uh, the more that we have, the more people that we can reach. So I encourage you to come on out for that. But let's just stand and finish in a song of worship.
1: Give my